One of my favorite preachers, arguably the greatest preacher of the 20th century, was a Welshman by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You can still get an app with all of his sermons on it. He's a great preacher. In his classic book called Spiritual Depression, he said this, in a sense, a depressed Christian is a contradiction in terms. He is a very poor recommendation for the gospel. A depressed Christian is a very poor advertisement, recommendation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons for that is because the Bible speaks so much of the joy of the Christian life. Now, that's not to say that there's not a time for sorrow and weeping and lamenting, even as Jesus is going to talk about it in this chapter. You read so many of the Psalms. In fact, there's a whole genre of Psalms, uh, a genre as much like with different kinds of music. You have country music, rock and roll. Well, there's a kind of Psalm called the Psalm of Lament, which often these Psalms are the psalmist pouring out his heart in tears. But nonetheless, even in the midst of the tears, believers have, can have joy. It's something that is commanded in the New Testament. In fact, Paul, from his house arrest in Philippians chapter 4, he writes to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice He wrote that from incarceration, exhorting the Philippians to rejoice. It is something that is available for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus anticipates a time of great sorrow and great grief for the disciples. And he wants to teach them about the joy that is available for them by the Holy Spirit. It should be no shocker that... The Apostle Paul, when he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, one of those fruits, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy is available for Christians. Jesus is going to give us two foundational reasons why joy is available for the Christian. The first we see, beginning in verse 12, because of Spirit-produced Scripture certainty. Spirit produced certainty that is given to believers because they have revelation from God, not in their own minds, not in their own feelings, but in the Word of God, the written Word of God. We say, where do you get that from, Matt? Well, you just have to stick with me a couple minutes. But first of all, we're in the midst again of a conversation, a teaching that Jesus has been giving. He's been talking about the disciples' relationship to the world, that the world is going to hate them. And he's even talked about what the Spirit is going to do in the world, namely that the Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And now he tells them, instructs them what the Spirit is going to do in their midst. Not what he's going to do in the world, but what he's going to do in the midst of God's people. And in verse 11, Jesus tells them, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus is a very wise teacher. 
he knows what his students can handle. He knows that they're not ready for certain truths. That there's certain things that the Holy Spirit is going to teach them in the future that now is not the time. We think of the author of Hebrews who says, uh, speaking of Melchizedek, concerning him in Hebrews 5.11, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You're not listening to the word of God. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of, their, uh, because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So, so the author of Hebrews tells the, these, these, this audience in Hebrews, you guys, you need baby food. You need a bottle. I should be able to feed you steak, burgers. But you're not ready for it. So here's the bottle, guys. Now you may be thinking, well, the book of Hebrews doesn't seem like a bottle. Right? That's pretty meaty, right? That's pretty steak-ish. But nonetheless, that's the wisdom of a good teacher. And Jesus knew that these disciples couldn't handle everything. And, and so in his wisdom, he doesn't tell them everything he could tell them. We recently adopted six babies. No, not six more children. Six little chickies. And uh, we have their feed for them. And, and I've been told that these little chickens... Uh, can't even digest something as small as a sunflower seed. That a sunflower seed can cause a bowel obstruction and they could die. Now later on they'll be able to eat a sunflower seed, but right now they're too small. They're too immature. And so Jesus tells his disciples here, you guys need to grow up. You're too immature to handle this. But as the kind and loving teacher, he will provide for them. They will grow. They will mature. And so he goes on in verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth. Notice, I mentioned this I think last week. I'll say it again. The spirit of God is a he. Not an it. Not a force. The Spirit of God is a He. When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. What is Jesus saying here? Well, our impulse, because we know the Bible is the Word of God and it's relevant to us today is to immediately jump to what Jesus is saying here and apply it to our lives and, and thank God that, that Jesus, that the Spirit of God guides us into all truth. But I think we need to pause before we take that interpretation. There is a truth, a reality, that the Holy Spirit does guide his people in the truth. If you read 1 John chapter 2, I believe he's referring to the, the Holy Spirit who is the anointing, who teaches us all things. 
But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. That would be what is sometimes called the doctrine of illumination, that the Spirit of God opens the eyes of believers to be able to see and to understand and to taste and receive the Word of God, to welcome the Scriptures, the, the voice of God into their lives and to help them to understand. He illuminates the Scriptures. But I think what Jesus is talking about here is not illumination, but revelation, where the Spirit of God is disclosing, revealing truth to the apostles that they would one day write down in the Scriptures. And one of the reasons why I think that is because when you combine this with verse 26 of John, earlier on in this Upper Room Discourse, in verse 26 it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit... Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So he says that the the Holy Spirit, the helper, would teach the disciples all things. Now, that's not calculus. That's not French literature. The all things in this context is the all things that Jesus taught them. Well, where do we find the things that Jesus taught the disciples? In the Gospels, right? I mean, isn't it a wonder that we can read like the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that Jesus preached and the the disciples maybe decades after Jesus uttered those words that they were able to write down the truth of what Jesus said to remember what he had said? That even this upper room discourse, the evening before Jesus died, chapters 13 through 17, they're able to recall Jesus' words Well, that was not natural, but that was supernatural. The Holy Spirit caused them to remember these things. But not only that, if you look at back to to John 16, 13, it says he will guide them in the truth. That's the idea that he would guide them so that everything that they would write would be true. For he will not speak on his own initiative. I think that's the idea that not from himself, that the Holy Spirit is one of three, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you not only only the things that Jesus taught in the past, but what is to come. Well, where do we find that? Well, there's many passages in the New Testament that tell us what's going to happen in the future. In fact, John the Apostle himself writes one of those, the entire book called The Apocalypse, The Revelation, The Disclosure of Jesus Christ. It's the last book of the Bible. You thought the book of Maps was the last book of the Bible. No, it's the book of Revelation. And so what, what Jesus is saying here is that he is going to send the Spirit of God, he's going to guide the apostles into truth so that they remember what Jesus said, so that they they are guided in truth to interpret the things that Jesus taught, to write those New Testament letters, and not only that, but to write about the things to come, Jesus' second coming. And so Jesus here is affirming what we call the New Testament, the last 27 books of the Bible. And according to Jesus, it's truth. It's no accident that 
In the next chapter, as Jesus is praying, he prays to the Father for the disciples. He says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Truth. Jesus believed the Bible. Jesus affirms the Bible. In fact, it's estimated that one out of every ten sentences out of Jesus' mouth that we have recorded in the New Testament is a citation from the Old Testament. It's very clear Jesus believed those first 39 books of the Bible. Now, skeptics and scoffers and even theological liberals try to deny that, but even in John chapter 10, Jesus himself said, the Scripture cannot be broken. It's God's Word. We see Jesus affirmed the provision for the manna for the Israelites in the desert in John chapter 6. You say, Matt, do you really believe that bread came down from heaven? Yeah, Jesus believed it. Jesus affirmed the reality of the bronze serpent that was put on the post. That Israelites who had been bitten by those fiery snakes were probably crawling and hobbling too. And if they looked in faith, they would be healed. You don't really believe that, do you? Jesus believed that. How about Jonah being swallowed by a great fish and a fish for three days with all of its digestive juices You don't really believe that? Well, Jesus believed it. Just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days and three nights. Yeah, I believe stranger things than that, even that Jesus rose from the dead. (laughs) Or how about... Well, you don't really believe those first chapters of Genesis, uh, you know, that, 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 that Adam and Eve were real people. I mean, you know, you know we, we're, we're evolved from, from the cosmic goo, and we've evolved into apes, and now look at the wonders of evolution. No, Jesus said, Matthew 19, from the beginning he made them male and female, day six. Well, you don't really believe in that global flood. Well, Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Remember the days of Noah when they were eating and marrying and drinking in marriage. Jesus believed it. Christians should too. And we can go on and on, of course, and and all of this is testimony that Jesus believed the Old Testament. But here in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, we see clear evidence that Jesus is affirming the New Testament, that, that the Holy Spirit would remind the disciples of the things that Jesus taught them, that the Holy Spirit would guide them into the truth, and that the Holy Spirit would disclose to them even the things to come. And all of that we find in the pages of the New Testament. You don't need to be ashamed of it. 
You don't know more than Jesus, do you? He's the omniscient God-man. The Holy Spirit, according to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, says that, that God guided, that, that holy men were carried along by the Spirit of God so that they spoke the Word of God. That no prophecy of Scripture came about by one's own private interpretation, but this was the work of the Spirit of God in guiding the writers of the New Testament. And so this is a big deal. And notice in verse 14, He will glorify me. He will take of mine to disclose it to you. All things that are the Father, ha- all that the Father has are mine. Therefore, uh, therefore, I said that He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So you have this beautiful Trinitarian self-disclosure that comes through the Spirit of God. But notice one of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit in verse 14. It, Jesus says, He will glorify me. One of the great works of the Spirit of God is to glorify Jesus, to exalt Christ. I've used this illustration before. It's borrowed, I think, from James Packer. When you go to a sporting event, maybe go to a scrapper's game here, go see the no longer called Cleveland Indians, won't utter their new name publicly. You don't go to the game and say, wow, look at those lights. They're amazing. No, you watch the game. The lights don't draw attention to themselves, but the lights shine the spotlight on the main center of attraction, what you paid for to watch grown men play playground sports and hit the ball 400, 500 feet to throw 95 mile per hour fastballs to throw splitties that drop off the table. In a similar way, the Spirit of God, He shines the spotlight on Jesus. And so it's no wonder that the Scriptures of whom the Spirit of God is the author of, would be so, dare I say, Christocentric. That every page seems to speak about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. You read the first four Gospels, it's all about Jesus. You read the book of Acts, it's about Jesus. You read the epistles, it's about Jesus. You read Revelation, it's about Jesus. You read the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it's about Jesus. You read the prophets, it's about Jesus. It all, in amazing ways, whether it's in the Old Testament and types and pictures and symbols, whether it's the sacrificial system that we spent weeks on in the book of Leviticus, or whether it's the the great day of atonement, or whether it's the Exodus, it's all shining in a light on Jesus. Jesus said, he will glorify me. And he does. And so, can I encourage you as you're reading the word of God, read it with an eye to see the Lord Jesus. It's about him and his saving work. 
And this, my friends, this work of the Spirit in guiding the apostles in the truth, it enables us to have certainty because it's truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is reality. And we live in a world with tremendous confusion. We live in a world that is descending into the abyss of the darkness of lies. So much we have Supreme Court justices who don't know what a woman is. We think we don't know what an unborn baby is. We don't know what marriage is. In the midst of all this, God's word speaks forth truth, reality. It tells us like it is, even if sometimes that's painful. The scripture is not squeamish about telling us how wicked our hearts are that help us to understand the reality of a a mass shooting in Texas. How could that happen? And the pundits try to explain how on earth could such a thing happen. Well, it's called the wickedness of the human heart. It's somebody doing something wicked in an unchecked, unrestrained way that if we're honest with ourselves in our moments of the most heated anger apart from God's grace, we might go that route. The Bible speaks truth. Man speaks lies. We're good people. We're just the product of our environment. We just have a disease. No, we're rebels. The Bible speaks truth. And so this truth, this certainty, gives us confidence and joy in this world of confusion. Now, I do need to clarify. The Scriptures give us certainty because it's God's truth, but it is not an omniscient certainty. You don't have the kind of certainty that God has because God knows everything. But you can know some things with certainty because the God who knows all things has revealed some things in His Word. He hasn't revealed everything, but He's revealed some things. And with that, you can have certainty. And so, my friends, the Spirit of God has given us the truth of His Word So do you take time to feed upon the truth of God's Word? We spoke earlier how the author of Hebrews likens the Word of God to food. Milk for babies. Solid for mature. Wherever you are at in your journey and walk with the Lord, your growth and your development... Are you aiming to regularly feed upon God's Word? Because if you don't, you will become emaciated, sick, and underdeveloped. 
And so you need to make it a habit to regularly feed upon God's Word, to make it a priority to be here on Sundays, to hear the Word of God read, the Word of God preached, to make it a habit in your daily life to memorize Scripture, to read Scripture, to feed upon Scripture. It's God's truth. Have you grown slack in your consumption of God's Word? Now, sometimes we throw out excuses. I mean, if I was to ask you, give me a basic understanding of what the book of Romans is about. You might hear crickets. And, and sometimes we, we make excuses. Well, you know, I'm just not that smart. I mean, I'm not a doctor, Matt. But, you know, if I was to ask you, Who's leading the American League in RBIs? You might be able to tell me. Tell me your favorite musicians. Tell me about whatever your favorite professional sports team. Your, tell me about cars. Some of you know lots about cars. We tend to remember and understand things that we like, right? We devote ourselves to those areas of interest. And none of, none of those areas I mentioned are, are wrong to, to have knowledge. Those are, those are fine in and of themselves. But what, what I'm contending for is that we can pursue a deeper understanding of God's revelation. And, and maybe we just need to ask God for a deeper love for His Word, a deeper devotion and to see it as, again, not merely for informational purposes so I can, you know, win Bible trivia, but so that I can know the true and living God more fully, that I can know Jesus, that I can live more devoted to Him. Well, the Spirit gives certainty. Spirit produced certainty through the Scripture. But secondly, there's Spirit produced clarity. Spirit produced clarity. Notice in verse 16, Jesus says, A little while you will no longer see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Verse 17, Some of the disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I go to the Father. Verse 18, So they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. So the disciples are confused. They don't understand it, and and part of their confusion is their lack of humility in humbly receiving what Jesus has been telling them over and over. Part of it is that they had these expectations of when Messiah comes, it's going to be this grand, glorious, global kingdom in which the Messiah will rule upon the earth and he will stomp out the enemies, the Gentiles, and, and they'll throw off the, the, the yoke of Roman imperialism. And then Jesus talking about dying. That doesn't sound like victory. That sounds like defeat. They're confused. 
In verse 19, Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? Jesus, again, the wise teacher. You know, sometimes you can see it in the looks in people's faces. Sometimes you hear the chatter. What's he talking about here? Jesus, as the wise teacher, gets that they don't get it. And so he he boldly and pointedly says, are you deliberating about this? That I said, a little while you will see me, and then again, a little while you will, uh, and again, a little while, and you will see me. And then verse 20, Jesus says, truly, truly, truly. This is another double amen in the gospel of John. Truth, truth. Listen up. I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. What is Jesus talking about here? He's saying you are going to weep and lament. This is funeral language. You're going to weep and lament. You're going to sob like babies. But the world will rejoice. It's going to seem like you lost. It's going to seem like I've been defeated. The world is going to celebrate and you're going to weep. R.C. Sproul says they used to have a saying on the golf course that every shot makes somebody happy. Every shot makes somebody happy. It may be a lousy hit off the fairway, but somebody's happy about it, the guys you're playing against. If it's a good hit right down the fairway, you're happy. Jesus' death made somebody happy. For the disciples, it was weeping and lamenting, but for the world, for those who opposed Christ, For the religious leaders for three and a half years had to put up with Jesus' teaching and him calling out their hypocrisy. For them, it was celebration. Break open the wine bottles. Time to celebrate. We did away with that disgusting Nazarene. We don't have to listen to his teachings anymore. But Jesus explains in verse 21... Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because the joy that a child has been born into the world. So Jesus is bringing clarity to what the disciples are about to experience. They're going to be weeping, thinking defeat. The world is going to be rejoicing, but Jesus now uses an obstetrics illustration to help them to understand that there will be temporary pain, but there's going to be joy that follows. And so he says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. This is what I've heard, (laughs) that labor can be very painful I've only witnessed one labor and delivery in my life. And no, it was not my own biological child. In a former life, I was a registered nurse and had to go through nursing school. 
and had an opportunity to sit in on one labor and delivery. And I can remember that husband gently stroking the hair of his wife, saying, honey, breathe. I am breathing. (laughs) She was in pain. And she wanted her husband to know that she was in pain. And when I saw that enormous baby come out of that birth canal, I understood why she was in enormous pain. But were I to go to that woman several hours later, after having rested some, with that little baby in her hands, the joy of holding that little one that she had worked so hard to deliver into this world, swallowed up all the pain and even, dare I say, helped her to interpret the pain properly. That the pain was a necessary component to what was joyfully and wonderfully taking place, namely of life being brought into this world. And this is what Jesus says. Notice the language that Jesus uses here. This is very important tip-off in verse 21. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Why? Because her hour has come. Does that ring a bell? It should if you've been with us in the Gospel of John because the hour over and over throughout the Gospel of John refers to what? The death of Jesus. Regularly, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then we come to that last week of Jesus' execution. Now, my hour has come. And so when Jesus, using this obstetrics illustration with this woman and and, and giving labor and the pain involved, he says that the labor, the pain, is the hour. So that's a tip. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the pain of his death. He's talking about the pain of his death when the hour has come. But when, verse 21, she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that has been born into the world. The joy that a child, a human being, has been born into the world. So what's the illustration? What's it pointing to? Jesus is teaching that Good Friday is understood as Good Friday because of Resurrection Sunday. There was a leading British economist who one December, who who was asked one December to give an economic forecast of the future. And he made this comment, quote, the significance of Christmas will not become clear until Easter. Now, of course, he meant by that that the economics of purchases and consuming during Christmas wouldn't become understandable until April and May. But him, much like Caiaphas, spoke better than he knew. 
that Christmas isn't understood except in the light of Easter. That Good Friday isn't understood except in the light of Resurrection Sunday. And even, dare I say, then Pentecost in enabling God's people to understand the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so what Jesus is saying here is that he's going to give clarity by his spirit that would bring joy to help them to understand Now, it's hard for us to appreciate this because we live in light of Resurrection Sunday. We've had thousands of years of Christianity and understanding Jesus' death. But imagine if you were those disciples, that original audience who for three and a half years have devoted your life to following Jesus. You've put all your family business on hold. You've put much of family life on hold. You've been following around this Jesus of Nazareth for the past three and a half years, listening to his teaching, doing what he says. And you have these hopes, these dreams that he's going to usher in the messianic kingdom and he's going to smash down these wicked Gentile Romans. And then you're in the garden and Roman soldiers come and they arrest Jesus. And then several hours go by after a kind of a kangaroo court and you see this Messiah, this Jesus suspended between heaven and earth dying in agonizing pain. No doubt wondering about the goodness of God. I've just given my life to this man. Now he's dying. Wondering about the wisdom of God. Can this really be? Is this really the way? Wondering about the power of God. With such display of weakness. Wondering if you've just wasted the past three and a half years of your life for nothing. But then Sunday came. And the tomb was empty. And Jesus reappeared on numerous occasions. And then all of a sudden it began to click in the thinking of the disciples. The Spirit of God gave them joy to understand the implications of the gruesome, agonizing death of Jesus, that God's goodness was at work behind the scenes to accomplish the greatest good imaginable, the salvation of God's people. This is the joy the joy that comes through Jesus and his resurrection. The joy of knowing Jesus has risen from the dead. Indeed, all that he said about his death is true, that he took my sin upon him. He took my judgment. I can be accepted before God because of him. I am forgiven, not on the basis of my own merits, but because of what he's done. Friend, is that your joy? Or do you yawn 
over the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. You've heard it so many times. You've become indifferent to it. Or do you really understand that Jesus died for my sins? Were it not for that, I would perish and go to hell forever and ever and ever. He died for me. He rose from the dead to demonstrate that. And now you have this joy. This joy. Because you understand and you believe. Friend, if you don't know that joy this morning, I commend you to Jesus. He's here in this room, not bodily, but He's here spiritually by His Spirit through the Word. And He's calling to you, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Have you been on the treadmill of good works trying to be accepted before God, hoping that God will just wink at your sins and accept you into His family? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You can get off the treadmill of good works and rest. Trust in me. He says, take my yoke upon you, for I am lowly and gentle of heart. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says in John, 6, or John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Are you thirsty this morning? Do you feel your need for the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God? You can drink of Jesus this morning. And for those who have drunk of Jesus, you keep drinking of Jesus. You can't keep drinking of the gospel knowing that this is where my sins are washed away. You reaffirm your faith and trust in His death and His resurrection. And you also realize that you now have clarity. 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 You know man's greatest problem. Sin. Rebellion. You know the solution. Jesus' death and resurrection. You have the clarity of God's promises that in the midst of the pain and the sorrow and the lament that God, the Almighty, is a good God working behind the scenes. You have the promise of Romans 8.28 for God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. You say, Matt, where are you getting that? Well, that's the sorrow, right? You see, if I was to ask, what's the most wicked act in human history that mankind has ever done? You'd have to say it was the murder of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And then if we ask the further question, what act in human history did God accomplish the greatest good for humanity? Same answer. The cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if God was working behind the scenes with the greatest, most wicked act of human history, the greatest good imaginable, can He not be working some mysterious good behind the scenes in your life 
whatever labor pains you may be going through right now, that you can trust His goodness. William Cooper, who struggled most of his life with being downcast, became friends with John Newton, and part of his biblical counseling assignment from John Newton was to write hymns with him every week. They were to write one hymn a week. It would eventually become known as the Olney Hymns. That was the name of the town they were from, the Olney uh, of Olney in England. And one of the hymns that was produced out of that tremendous sorrow was William Cooper's God Moves in Mysterious Ways. It's not a very well-known hymn because nobody's been able to find a good tune to put it to. I've never heard a very well-singable version, but it's worth listening to the words. Cooper writes, Of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. He plants his footsteps on the sea and he rides upon the storm. Behind a frowning providence, he hides his smiling face. You see, the disciples, by the Spirit, began to understand the clarity of God's goodness despite the sorrows of Jesus' suffering. Friends, God is always good, no matter what you're going through. One of my more recent theological reads is about 30 pages long. It's a children's book. It's called The Moon is Always Round. It's about a father who teaches his child that the moon is always round. And day after day, night after night, the father points up in the sky and says, what shape is the moon? The child says, well, it looks like a half an orange tonight. But what shape is the moon always? The moon is always round. What, what shape does the moon look tonight? Well, it kind of looks like a banana. But son, what shape is the moon really? The moon is always round. And then the story goes on about this family that finds out that the mother's pregnant. And the father says to the son, What shape is the moon tonight? Well, it's kind of like a crescent, Dad, but what shape is it in reality and always? It's always round. And then the story moves on to the reality that the mother has miscarried. They're not going to be bringing baby sister home. The father says to the son, What shape is the moon tonight? Well, it looks like a half orange, but what shape is it always and forever? The moon is always round. Friends, God is always good. The moon is always round. Sometimes half of its 
hiding. Sometimes you're encountering a difficulty in life, the death of a loved one. Sometimes you lose your job. Sometimes you're betrayed by a friend. But the moon is always round. You see, friends, that's the kind of clarity that brings joy to our lives. Knowing who God is. And it's the Spirit of God that produces this kind of clarity that enables us in the midst of the tears, in the midst of the sorrows, in the midst of the hardships of life to press into the God who is always good. Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite early colonial pastor theologians, experienced tremendous hardship in his life. He had become pastor of one of the most prominent churches in New England in Northampton. His grandfather, who was his predecessor as pastor, was named Solomon Stoddard. He was known as the Pope of New England because he carried such prominence. And it was Jonathan Edwards who became pastor of this church. And he tried to carry on much of the tradition and preaching of his grandfather but at some point a lot of dissent began to happen amongst the people lies disseminated about him slander and he was fired by his church this man who Encyclopedia Britannica called the smartest man that America ever produced, the most brilliant man that America ever produced, found himself isolated out on the frontier in a small Native American mission church. One of his early biographers observed him and said, it seemed as if Nothing could rob him of his joy. It seemed that his joy was untouchable. That's the kind of joy that the Spirit of God gives, that through the tears, through the sorrows, through the sobs, there's a settled joy that God is good. This comes through the Spirit. The certainty that he gives and the clarity that he gives. Let's pray.